Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. All of God's word is wonderful and we can learn things from it, but I'll tell you, I was studying Isaiah 7 this week. I was like, wow, we're going to have fun this morning. I'm going to have fun anyway. Hopefully you will enjoy yourselves as well. Turn to Isaiah chapter 7. That's where we're going to be this morning. But as we begin, I want to give you a a few common biblical phrases that I want you to, to rate for me. The first is this, cleanliness is next to godliness. Biblical, right? When I was a kid, my mom told me that that was in the Bible. You know, a little extra moral authority laid on when she wanted me to clean up my room. Cleanliness is next to godliness. And literally, we had this argument that went on for years. I kept saying, it's not in the Bible, mom. It's not in the Bible. Finally, when I was about 18 years old, she finally said, I know it's not in the Bible. But it's, you know, man, that's a powerful phrase. You know, here's godliness and cleanliness right there. Mm, It's a lot of pressure. Here's another one for you. Money is the root of all evil. Biblical? Mm, No. Kind of drawn from a biblical phrase. The biblical phrase, actually, people who say this to you actually just want more of your money. (laughs) They're saying money is the root of all evil. It's bad. And, you know, you're having a hard time with it. So you should give more just for your benefit to me. Uh, It actually says the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. In other words, greed, right? Okay. One more for you. God helps those who help themselves. That's biblical, of course, right? Actually, that originated with Aesop's fables, and then Benjamin Franklin made it very popular. He was a deist, and in his worldview, God was not actually really involved in the day-to-day activities of the world. Those were our responsibility. So God helps those who help themselves, who through their own power and strength and ingenuity and money or whatever made things happen. God helps those who help themselves, not exactly biblical. Now, if you're a parent with your, uh, visiting with your student this morning, I, I want to let you know I'm not going to promote laziness this morning. I just want to say that this is not a biblical phrase. And in fact, it really illustrates what one of the major problems was in Isaiah's day. Isaiah, by the word of the Lord, condemned independence. He condemned the pride and self-sufficiency of people in his day. When we are blessed by God, God wants our response to be, thank you, Lord, thank you for what you have given me. All that I have is a gift from you. When we're in crisis, God wants us to say, God, help me, rescue me, deliver me. Whatever situation we are in in life, whether it's a blessing or it's a crisis, whether it's physical or financial, or or emotional, whatever it is, God wants us to run and to actively cling to him and depend upon him. In Isaiah chapter 7, the nation is in a crisis. And the king and the people have to decide, will they turn to their own strength? Will they turn to the strength of the nations around them? Or will they turn to the strength of the Lord? Read with me in Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up against Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake in the wind. The year is 735 BC. I want to take you back to... um, 
a preview that we gave the first week when we started this series. The year is 735 BC. Isaiah is about five years into his prophetic ministry. And the southern kingdom of Judah was a small kingdom. Remember, Israel had split into northern and southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom was normally called Israel or Ephraim. The southern called Judah. Judah was a tiny little country here surrounded by enemies. Okay? Israel and Syria to the north, to the west, they had the uh, Philistines. To the south, there was Egypt and Edom. They were surrounded on all sides. Where would they turn in time of attack? Nation of Judah was governed at this time by King Ahaz. The capital was Jerusalem. Just to the north, Israel and and Syria. Syria is also called Aram. So when you see the phrase, the Arameans or Aram, that's referring to Syria. Their capital is in Damascus. They're governed by King Rezin. Israel is also called Ephraim because Ephraim was the largest of the 10 tribes that split away and went to the north. They're governed by Pekah, son of Remaliah, and the capital is in Samaria. Now, in the face of a larger Assyrian threat, these nations of Syria and Israel banded together and they said, together we can fight against Assyria, especially if we bring in some of these smaller kingdoms like Judah or like Edom, maybe even get Egypt to form an alliance with us. And so they solicited these other kingdoms to join an alliance. Judah didn't want to join the alliance. So what would they do? Okay, they had just a few choices. They could go it alone and they could fight against Israel and Syria. Or maybe they could go down to Egypt and get the Egyptians to join with them, but Egypt was not a very powerful kingdom at this time. Or they could give in to Syria and Israel and become another vassal state. Or possibly they could go to their enemies, the Assyrians, and say, Assyrians, will you deliver us because Syria and Israel have now turned against us because we won't join them? Will you rescue us? Those were the options that were laid before them, but God gives them a- another way. Okay? He gives them another option of where to turn. Look with me in chapter 7, verse 3. It says, The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Yashuv, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands. On account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, and the son of Remaliah. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it, and make for ourselves a breach in its wall, and set up our own king, the son of Tabil, as king in its midst. Thus says the Lord, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. God offers him another option, and that is God's own presence. He says, you don't have to turn to the mighty nation of Assyria. You don't have to even wage war on your own against Syria and Israel. You don't have to form an alliance with them or with Egypt. Just turn to me. Just trust in me. Notice again in verse 3, the setting, it says, The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now and meet Ahaz, you and your son Shear Yashub, at the conduit of the upper pool. What is Ahaz doing out at the water? 
Why did he go out to this pool? Well, he's taking his royal court with him and they're examining the water supply because they're assuming they're about to get attacked and there's going to be a siege against the city, Jerusalem. And so the most important thing that they can do is to secure the water supply. So here they are out examining the water supply, seeing if, if everything is in place when the siege comes. And Isaiah goes out, he takes his one son along with him, Shear Yeshuv, and he delivers a message. And the message is simply this. These two nations, they're, they're like smoldering logs. They're about to go out. He mocks them. Don't shake. Don't be afraid. They're nothing. Thus says the Lord. And when you see that in the Bible, you should stop and say, I should pay attention. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant keeping God, it's not going to happen. And then he makes an interesting statement at the end of verse 9. If you believe, you will stand secure. And in Hebrew, it's a play on words because that phrase, if you believe and stand secure, are the same verb. It's a verb for faith. If you have faith, if you stand firm and trust me, then you will stand firm. And if you do not stand firm in faith in me, you're going to shake like the wind. You will be terrorized because I am the only source of hope for you. What will Ahaz choose? Verse 10. The Lord spoke again to Ahaz saying, ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. It's your God, Ahaz. Ask for a sign. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Ask for something miraculous if you wish. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. And let me tell you, uh, that's false piety. He had already made up his mind not to trust in God, but to trust in the Assyrians. Keep your place here in Isaiah 7 and turn back to 2 Kings chapter 16. 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 1. Remember, we're in the fifth year of Isaiah's prophetic ministry. It's the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, became king. He was 20 years old when he became king. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he was a stinky king. He was very, very bad. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, that is, the northern kingdom. He even made his son pass through fire. That means he sacrificed his son, burned his son up. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel, he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, not in the temple, and on the hills and under under every green tree. Then Rezin king of Aram and Pekah son of Remaliah king of Israel came up to Jerusalem to wage war, and they besieged Ahaz, but they couldn't overcome him. They're wiping out the countryside, but they couldn't quite take Jerusalem. At that time, Rezin king of Aram recovered a lot for Aram. And he cleared the Judeans out of Elat entirely. The Arameans came to Elat and lived there to this day. And right between 6 and 7, Isaiah comes and he offers this prophecy. Don't trust in the Assyrians. Trust only in the Lord your God. Verse 7. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant, I am your son. The king of Israel was to be whose servant? The king was the servant of the Lord. This is a huge theme in the book of Isaiah. You need to pick up on it. The king is the servant of God. 
the nation of Israel is the servant of God. The king is to lead the nation to serve the Lord. Because they're not, he sends prophets who are the servant of the Lord. Isaiah is a paradigm of how people should respond as God's servants to him. Ultimately, God's Messiah, the ultimate son, he will be called the servant of the Lord. What does Ahaz say to the king of Assyria? I am your servant. I am your son. The king of Israel was to be the son of whom? The son of God. That was a title for the king of Israel. I am a son of God. And he says no to the king of Assyria. No, I am your son. Okay, he abdicates all of his responsibility to God and turns it over to serve the king of Assyria. Come up and deliver me from the hand of the king of Aram and from the hand of the king of Israel who are rising up against me. Ahaz took silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. In other words, he goes into the temple and he takes the people's offerings to God for worship and he gives them to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria went up against Damascus, that is the capital of Syria, captured it, carried away the people, away into exile to Kir and put resin to death. Now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath, Pileser, king of Assyria. And he saw the altar which was at Damascus. In other words, the king of Assyria came. He conquered the capital city of Syria. He destroyed their worship because his gods were greater. And he set up a temple and an altar to his Assyrian gods. Ahaz goes to Damascus and he sees this temple. He sees this altar and he says, I guess I need one like that because those gods are most powerful. They conquered Syria. And so he draws a picture. He writes down dimensions. He sends them to his priests and he says, make me an altar like that altar. And he sets up an Assyrian altar in the temple of God. And he tears down the altar of God. He tears down the worship of God in Jerusalem. And instead he worships the gods of Assyria in Jerusalem. He makes his choice. He turns to Assyria. He turns to the strength of man rather than turning to the Lord his God. Turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 7 and notice God's response. Needless to say, God's not happy. Verse 13, then he said to him, this is Isaiah speaking, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God. He doesn't call him your God anymore. He says, will you try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings that you dread will be forsaken. In other words, God says to him, you don't want a sign? Well, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. You don't want my presence? You're going to get my presence anyway. Behold, I'm going to give you a sign. It's in verse 14. What does he mean? What is a sign? Well, a sign could be a miraculous event or it could be a natural event. An object or a person marked as having special significance. So could be something miraculous, could be something natural. But it is marked out by God and God says, this means something. So when you see it, it means something. There is one 
for certain miraculous event or sign in the book of Isaiah where Hezekiah asks for a sign and the sun actually moves backwards. Okay? Question is, in this setting, is this a miraculous sign or is it not a miraculous sign? Or, more specifically, is this prophecy about Jesus or is it not? The answer is no and yes. Okay, so before you think I'm a heretic, let me just show you how this kind of plays out. Okay, you don't have to get up and leave just yet. Is this specifically about Jesus? I'm going to say not immediately. Okay, not immediately, but it opens the doorway for a greater son. But it's not immediately about Jesus. I'm going to read to you from uh, the Net Bible translation because I think it makes it a little more clear what's going on in this setting. Okay, it says, so Isaiah replied, pay attention family of David. Now he is speaking to a group of people. Remember, a whole group went out to examine the water. And he and his son went out to meet them. He's talking to the royal court. Ahaz and his royal family and his advisors are out with him. So it says, pay attention family of David. Do you, plural, okay, do you, plural. Just a moment ago, he's turned just to Isaiah and said, Isaiah, you in particular, ask for a sign. You, Isaiah, or Ahaz, you, Ahaz, don't be afraid. Ahaz, ask me for a sign. Now he turns to the whole house of David, the royal family, and he says, do you consider it too insignificant to try the patience of men? Is that why you, or to make it culturally relevant, do y'all, okay, do y'all also want to try the patience of my God? For this reason, the sovereign master, Adonai himself, will give all of you a confirming sign. Look, this young woman is about to conceive and give birth to a son. And you, young woman, will name him Emmanuel. Okay? That's how it should be translated. In other words, he's talking to the whole group. And he turns at one point, and there's a definite article in here, and he says, and and this young woman right here, She's going to give birth to a son. And you, young lady, you're going to call his name Emmanuel. That is God with us. So there has to be an immediate fulfillment of this. In this woman's lifetime, in Isaiah's lifetime, in Ahaz's lifetime, to demonstrate what? That God is with us. And the name doesn't have to specifically be, this is what we go around and call this person. This is a name that represents something. It represents a sign. Remember, even Jesus was never called Emmanuel. His parents called him what? Jesus. That was his name. But he represented something else. So he turns to this woman and says, this child that you are about to bear will represent the fact that God is with us. Notice how it's fulfilled. Verse 15. This boy will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. When is that? Well, in Jewish thinking, that's about 12 years of age. To know enough to choose good and refuse evil was the age of accountability. They assumed it was about 12 years old. So what Isaiah is saying is this sign is going to be fulfilled within 12 years. For before the boy knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. In other words, the sign means two things. First, it's good news. These two kings that you dread, Syria and Israel, are going to be forsaken. They're going to be wiped out within 12 years. In fact, that's what happened. Syria was destroyed two years later, and Israel about 12 years later. 
Okay, so within that 12-year time span, in fact, this did occur historically. These nations were wiped out. That's good news. Emmanuel, God is with us. God is with us for deliverance. Now remember, Isaiah brought his son, Shear Yeshuv, and his son's names meant something. They were for signs. Isaiah's name was for a sign. Isaiah's name means what? The Lord saves. Okay? God delivers. Shear Yeshuv means a remnant, and only a remnant will return. In other words, the Syrians and the Israelites are going to get so wiped out, there's only going to be a few of them left. That is really, really good news. But it goes on, verse 17. The Lord will bring on you, on your people, Judah, and on your father's house, the house of David, such days as never have come since the day that Ephraim separated from Judah, that is, the king of Assyria. Ouch. In other words, the, the, the one whom you trusted to deliver you, He's going to turn on you and he's going to destroy you because there is only salvation in the Lord. And that's exactly what happened. Okay, this is the bad news. Assyria came down from the north. Egypt came up from the south and they battled and they battled on the the nation of Israel's land. And what happened was the land was completely decimated. All the animals were killed. The crops were destroyed. Cities were broken down. It was a total disaster, a total mess Look in verse 25 or 23. It says, It will come about in that day that every place where there used to be a thousand vines valued at a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. People will come there with bows and arrows because all the land will be briars and thorns. As for all the hills which used to be cultivated with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place for pasturing oxen and for sheep to trample. Whoa. Why? Because you did not believe. In other words, Shear Yashuv applies to you too. There's only going to be a remnant left of your own people. Why? Because he said, if you will not believe, if you will not trust in me, you surely shall not last. God pictures himself throughout the book of Isaiah as this strong rock. And if you want to be safe, Hide in that rock. But if you don't hide in that rock, that rock will roll over you and crush you. Because there is only salvation in the Lord. God won't let us be rescued from the crises in our lives through any other means but through him. Isaiah, Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. There is only salvation in him. That's the significance of the sign. So when did this sign need to be fulfilled? Well, pretty quickly. Because all these world events happened within about 12 years. So turn now to chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to me, that is to Isaiah, Take for yourself a large tablet and write on it in ordinary letters. Swift is the spoil, speedy is the prey. In other words, in Hebrew, write on it in ordinary letters the phrase, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, and I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jerah Berechiah. In other words, I want you to get two faithful witnesses. And the three of you sit down in a room, you're going to get out a tablet, and you're going to write down just one phrase, and then you're going to roll it up, and you're going to seal it, because when all these events happen, I want you to break the seal, hold it up to the people and say in their face, I told you so. I told you so. I promised it. 
Didn't I say it would be fulfilled? And here's how it's fulfilled. Verse 3. So I approached the prophetess, who in my opinion is this young woman. Okay? This young woman. In Hebrew, the word is Alma. It, It could refer to a virgin. All it really means literally is a woman of marriageable age. A young woman. Now we know later in the birth of Jesus, that she was actually a virgin. Okay, Let's put that on pause for a moment. In Isaiah's day, that's not really relevant. The point is just everybody knows who this woman is. Everybody knows that Isaiah said she's going to become pregnant and she's going to have a child and that child will be a sign of the presence of God with us both for deliverance and for discipline. So I approached the prophetess. She conceived. She gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, name him. Swift is the spoil. Speedy is the prey. Why? For before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. In other words, this child will be a sign that I'm with you for deliverance and I'm with you for discipline because the spoil of Damascus and Syria will be carried away, Ah, but so will yours. Yours will be carried away as well. Verse 5, again, the Lord spoke to me further saying, inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloach. What are the gently flowing waters of Shiloach? The Lord. They've rejected the gently flowing waters of God, his provision. And they rejoice in resin in the son of Remaliah. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of Euphrates. Even the king of Assyria in all his glory, it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. Then it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck and spread, the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of the earth of your land. Oh, Emmanuel. This son is a representation of Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. Now, the wonder of God's revelation to his people is the final word for us is never discipline. It is deliverance. God's final word to his people is a word of deliverance. I want you to look with me. Chapter 9 and verse 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts or God's great passion and his loyal love for his people. That's what will bring this about. Not any of their foreign alliances, not any of their own strength. In other words, God promises his perfect presence in another son. So what we've got going on here in Isaiah 7, 8, and 9 is that God is establishing a pattern. That he will give a sign and that sign will be a son who will be a sign of his deliverance. In other words, deliverance will not be brought about through massive military campaigns, but just through trust in the Lord. Paradoxically, just through, through a weak child, a weak child will represent the deliverance of the Lord. 
Isaiah says in chapter 9, there's another son that will be given to us. And so writing to these people, some of whom would eventually go into exile and they would be waiting and longing, will God deliver us? They can look back and they say, we remember when Isaiah had a child and, and God prophesied that there would be deliverance from Syria and Israel. It happened. It happened. And now God promises that he's going to bring a greater son and he is going to be a wonderful counselor. He's going to be perfectly wise. He's going to be mighty God. He will be strength. He will have military strength. He will guard and protect us from the nations around us. He will bring in shalom, perfect peace. And as we move through the book of Isaiah, we're going to look at all of the blessings that the ultimate son of God would bring in for the people of Israel. But they were always longing as they read this book and saying to themselves, when God, when are you going to send your son? When are you going to send your son? But we know, don't we? We know. Matthew chapter 1, an angel came and spoke to Joseph, a son of David. From the very family of David, a root and offspring of David. And he said, don't be afraid. Don't shake like Ahaz did. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. That is what he will accomplish. What does the name Jesus mean? I mean, you should know this. Okay, you don't have to know all Bible trivia uh, all the time, but this, you should know the name of Jesus if you don't write it in your margin a million times. You've got to remember it. Jesus means the Lord saves. It means Yahweh saves. What is the name of Jesus in Hebrew? I just told you about 15 minutes ago. Isaiah. Oh, that's cool. Yeshua, Isaiah, Jesus, the Lord saves. The Lord delivers. There is only deliverance in the Lord. Call his name Jesus. Why? Because this is what he's going to accomplish. He will save or deliver his people from their sins. He's the only one who can rescue them from the penalty and power of their sins. He alone. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. That is the prophet Isaiah. Yahweh saves. Behold, the virgin will be with child and shall bear a son. And they will call his name Emmanuel. Because this is what he represents in an even greater way. Than Isaiah's child. In an even greater way, this one represents Emmanuel because he will be literally God in human flesh, God with us. He will be God with us. And so when Jesus came, God offered his son to the nation. What was going on? They were in a crisis. Okay, just like the people in Ahaz's day, it was a time of crisis. There was Roman oppression. How could they get out of it? Well, you know, they could band together and they could get all the military strength they wanted and fight against Rome. That was one option. Or they could just roll over. They could capitulate, compromise with the Roman government. Or they could welcome God's son on his own terms. And so God made them an offer, that is, a greater son, who said this, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I am God's son. Will you welcome me? 
And what was their response? Just like Ahaz. Now, we'll figure our own way out of this. Crucify him because we have no other king but Caesar. Ahaz turned to Assyria. The Jews in Jesus' day turned to Caesar. And then eventually they got fed up with Caesar and they rebelled. And what happened? Emmanuel, God with us in discipline. God wiped out the nation of Israel and their temple was destroyed in AD 70. And there was no longer a nation of Israel. But remember, God's final word to his people is never discipline. Because he's always calling out. He's always calling out, let me rescue you. Isaiah 55, it says this. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come. Buy and eat. Because God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who trust in him. Come buy wine and milk without money and without costs. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Come to me. This morning, if you have never, ever come to God, say, God, I can't help myself. I can't remove the debt of sin. I can't remove the separation, but I know that I need you. I need relationship with you. Then come, come to Jesus and say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for being God's perfect son, God in human flesh, paying the debt for my sin. I believe the moment that you do, that debt is removed and you're restored to relationship with God. Or maybe you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're in the midst of a crisis. Maybe it's physical, maybe it's financial, maybe it's emotional. And you're looking around for source of of deliverance everywhere. And God is calling out and he's saying, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I'm the rock that cannot be moved. Find shelter in me. Trust in me. It's not being passive. It's actively clinging to God because he alone can deliver. This morning as we close, we're going to have an opportunity to celebrate communion, which is a wonderful, visual, tangible reminder of Emmanuel. God is with us. Jesus says, said, take the bread, take the cup, and be reminded, I am with you. I sacrificed for you, and I live inside of you. I am with you. I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. Trust me. If I can't have the men come forward and serve us, we're going to to wait till everyone is served and then we'll take the the bread and the cup together. And as they're serving, I'd like for you to just take a few moments and if you're in the midst of one of those crises, maybe coming out of one or anticipating something, let's take a moment and remember, God is with us and he alone can save. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread as a reminder of his body, his physical suffering for us. Let's take the bread together. Afterward, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's a reminder to you of the payment for your sins, 
the sacrifice that I made so you could be reconciled to me. Let's take the cup together. Father, I pray that you would refresh our spirits the reminder of Emmanuel. God is with us. You are with us and you will never abandon us or forsake us. I pray that you'd refresh our spirits with a reminder that there is salvation, there is rescue, there is deliverance in no one else. There's no more powerful one that we can turn to other than to you. And so I pray, Father, as we walk with you closely this week, that your presence would be real and powerful in our lives. Father, we thank you for giving us Jesus Messiah, for giving us your only son in human flesh to make such an incredible sacrifice for us, to demonstrate your presence, uh, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, your, your deep and loyal love for us and your compassion for us to rescue us when we were helpless, when we could not, in fact, help ourselves. You saved us. Father, we thank you for Jesus, and I pray that throughout this week we would learn how to to deeply, actively cling to him. No matter what circumstances come up, we would not trust in ourselves or in those around us, but we would trust in your son, Jesus. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.